Section 13 of The Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation by James Barr Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. Concerning the Manifestations of God which would be necessary, under the new and spiritual dispensation, to produce in the soul of man affectionate obedience. Man's mental and moral constitution was the same under the new as under the Old Testament dispensation. The same methods, therefore, which were adapted to move man's nature under the one, would be adapted to do so under the other. The difference between the two dispensations was, the first was a preparatory dispensation, its manifestations for the most part being seen and temporal, the second a perfect system of truth, spiritual in its character, and in the method of its communication. But, whether the truths were temporal or spiritual, and whether they were brought to view by faith or sight, in order to produce a given effect upon the soul or any of its powers, the same methods under all dispensations would be necessary, varied only to suit the advancement of the mind in knowledge, and differences existing in the habits and circumstances of men, and the character of the dispensation to be introduced. For instance, under one dispensation, it being in a great measure temporal, preparatory, and imperfect, love might be produced by making men feel temporal want, and by God granting temporal benefits, while under a spiritual and universal system, men must likewise feel the want and receive the benefit in order to love, but the want felt and the benefit conferred must be of a spiritual character. Under all dispensations, an essential requisite after the way for its introduction was prepared would be such manifestations of God to men as would produce love in the human heart for the object of worship and obedience. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart is the first great law of the universe, and God cannot be honored nor man made happy unless his obedience be actuated by love to the object of obedience. Footnote. See chapter 4 on affectionate obedience. End footnote. Now, the manifestations of mercy, under the old dispensation, were mainly temporal in their character, and limited in their application to the Jews. But God's special goodness to them could not produce love in the hearts of the Gentiles. The manifestations in Egypt were, therefore, neither adapted in their character nor in the extent of their design to the spiritual and universal religion of Jesus Christ. But one part of the Mosaic economy was universal and immutable in its character. The moral law is the same forever in its application to all intelligent beings in the universe. It is plain to reason that whatever means may be adopted to bring men to rectitude of conduct, or to pardon them for offenses, the rule of right itself, founded upon the justice and holiness, and sustained by the conscience of the eternal, must be immutable and eternal as its author. And the means, manifestations, and influences, under the different dispensations, are expedients of mercy, designed and adapted to bring men to act in conformity with its requirements. How then, under the new dispensation, and in conformity with its spiritual and universal character, could love for God be produced in the human heart? We will here again, as the subject at hand is most important, 
notice some of the conditions upon which affection for an object may be produced in the heart. The will is influenced by motives and by affection, and all acts of will produced entirely by pure affection are disinterested acts. There is probably no one living who has attained to maturity of years, but has at some period of life felt affection for another, so that it was more gratifying to please the object of his affection than to please himself. Love for another always influences the will to do those things which please the object loved, and the acts which proceed from affection are disinterested, not being done with any selfish end in view, but to conform to the will and meet the desire of another. The moment the affections are fixed upon an object, the will is drawn into union with the will of the object loved, and if that object be regarded as superior, in proportion as he rises above us in the scale of being, to obey his will and secure his regard becomes a spontaneous volition of the soul, and the pleasure that arises from affectionate compliance with the will of a worthy and loved object does not arise because it is sought for, but from the constitution the maker has given to the human soul. It is the result of its activity, produced in accordance with the law of love. All happy obedience must arise from affection, exercised towards the object obeyed. Obedience which arises from affection blesses the spirit which yields it, if the conscience approve of the object obeyed. While, on the contrary, no being can be happy in obeying one whom he does not love. To obey a parent, or to obey God, from interested motives, would be sin. The devil might be obeyed for the same reasons. All enlightened minds agree to what the Bible confirms, and what reason can clearly perceive, without argument, that love for God is essential to every act of religious duty. To tender obedience or homage to God, while we had no love for him in our hearts, would be dishonorable to the Maker, and doing violence to our own nature. When an object presents itself to the attention, whose character engages the heart, then the affections flow out, and the soul acts sweetly in this new relation. There is a bond of sympathy between the hearts of the two beings, and those things which affect the one affect the other, in proportion to the strength of the cherished affection. One meets the desires and conforms to the will of the other, not from a sense of obligation merely, but from choice. And in thus giving and receiving affection, the soul experiences its highest enjoyment, its greatest good. And when the understanding perceives in the object loved, perfections of the highest character, and affection of the purest kind for those that love him, the conscience sanctions the action of the heart and the obedience of the will, and all the moral powers of the soul unite in happy and harmonious action. We return now to the problem. Under the spiritual dispensation of Christ, how would the affections of the soul be awakened by faith, and fixed upon God, their proper object? The principle has been stated, which every one will recognize as true in his own experience, that the more we feel the want of a benefactor, temporal or spiritual, and the more we feel our inability to rescue ourselves from existing difficulties and impending dangers, the more grateful love will the heart feel for the being, who, moved by kindness, and in despite of personal sacrifices, 
interposes to assist and save us. Under the Old Testament dispensation, the affections of the Israelites were educed and fixed upon God in accordance with this law of the soul. They were placed in circumstances of abject need, and from this condition of suffering and sorrow, God delivered them, and thus drew their hearts to himself. Now the Jews, as has been noticed, supposed that the Messiah would appear and again confer upon them similar favors, by delivering them from their state of dependence and subjection as a nation. But a temporal deliverance of this kind, as has been shown, was not consistent with the design of Christ's perfect and spiritual dispensation, which was designed to save men from sin and spiritual bondage, and restore them to spiritual happiness by restoring them to affectionate obedience to the only living and true God. The inquiry then presents itself, as a feeling of want was necessary, in order that the soul might love the being that supplied that want, and as Jesus came to bestow spiritual mercies upon mankind, how could men be brought to feel the want of a spiritual benefactor and saviour? Allow the thought to be repeated again. According to the constitution which God has given the soul, it must feel the want of spiritual mercies before it can feel love for the giver of those mercies. And just in proportion as the soul feels its lost, guilty, and dangerous condition, in the same proportion will it exercise love to the being who grants spiritual favor and salvation. How, then, could the spiritual want be produced in the souls of men, in order that they might love the spiritual benefactor? Not by temporal bondage and temporal suffering, because these would lead men to desire a temporal deliverance. The only possible way by which man could be made to hope for and appreciate spiritual mercies and to love a spiritual deliverer, would be to produce a conviction in the soul itself of its evil condition, its danger as a spiritual being, and its inability, unaided, to satisfy the requirements of a spiritual law, or to escape its just and spiritual penalty. If man could be made to perceive that he was guilty and needy, that his soul was under the condemnation of the holy law of a holy God, he would then necessarily feel the need of a deliverance from sin and its consequences, and in this way only could the soul of man be led to appreciate spiritual mercies, or love a spiritual benefactor. Mark another fact, in connection with the foregoing, which is to be especially noticed, and which will be developed fully in subsequent pages. The greater the kindness and self-denial of a benefactor manifested in our behalf, the warmer and stronger will be the affection which his goodness will produce in the human heart. Here, then, are two facts growing out of the constitution of human nature. First, the soul must feel its evil and lost state, as the prerequisite condition upon which alone it can love a deliverer. Second, the degree of kindness and self-denial in a benefactor, temporal or spiritual, graduates the degree of affection and gratitude that will be awakened for him. Now, in view of these necessary conditions, mark the means which God has used, and the manifestations which he has made of himself, in order to secure the supreme love of the human soul. In the first place, the soul is brought to see and feel its evil and lost condition, and its need of deliverance. 
in the advent of jesus the roman world was in precisely the condition which was necessary to prepare it for its doctrines the jews had the moral law written in their scriptures and recognized it as the will of jehovah and the gentiles had its requirements concerning their duty to each other and their duty to worship written upon their hearts both the doctors among the jews and the schools of philosophy among the gentiles especially those of the stoics taught the obligatory nature of many of the important moral duties which man owes to man no period in the history of the heathen mind ever existed before or since when man's relations to man were so clearly perceived footnote for the views of the different schools of grecian and roman philosophy at this period and the amount of their indebtedness to the jewish scriptures see enfield's the history of philosophy and footnote the jews however had these advantages that while the few intelligent gentiles received the instruction of the philosophers in relation to morals as truth it was truth without any higher sanction than that of having been spoken by wise men and therefore it contained in itself no authority or weight of obligation to bind the conscience while they had the moral law as a rule of duty sanctioned by the authority and infinite justice of jehovah thus the moral virtues assumed the sanction of religious duties and they had not only the moral precepts thus sanctioned but having been taught the true character of god their religious duties were likewise united in the same sacred decalogue there was however in the application of the law one most important and vital mistake in relation to what constituted human guilt the moral law was generally applied as the civil law not to the acts of the spirit but to the acts of the body it was applied to the external conduct of men not to the internal life if there was conformity to the letter of the law in external manners there was a fulfilment in the eyes of the jew and the gentile of the highest claims that god or man held upon the spirit no matter how dark or damning were the exercises of the soul if it only kept its sin in its own habitation and did not develop it in action the penalty of the law was not laid to its charge the character of the spirit itself might be criminal and all its exercises of thought and feeling sensual and selfish yet if it added hypocrisy to its guilt and maintained an outward conformity to the law a conformity itself produced by selfishness man judged himself and others adjudged him guiltless man could not therefore understand his own guilt as a spiritual being nor feel his condemned and lost condition until the requirements of the holy law were applied to the exercises of his soul now jesus applied the divine law directly to the soul and laid its obligation upon the movements of the will and the desires he taught that all wrong thoughts and feelings were acts of transgression against god and as such would be visited with the penalty of the divine law thus he made the law spiritual and its penalty spiritual and appealing to the authority of the supreme god he laid its claims upon the naked soul he entered the secret recesses of the spirit's tabernacle he flashed the light of the divine law upon the awful secrets known only to the soul itself and with the voice of a god he spoke to the eye of the mind thou shalt not will nor desire 
nor feel wickedly. When he had thus shown that all the wrong exercises of the soul were sin against God, and that the soul was in a guilty condition, under the condemnation of the divine law, he then directs the attention to the spiritual consequences of this guilt. These he declared to be exclusion from the kingdom and presence of God, and penalty which involved either endless spiritual suffering or destruction of the soul itself. The punishment which he declared to be impending over the unbelieving and impenitent spirit, he portrayed by using all those figures which would lead men to apprehend the most fearful and unmitigated spiritual misery. Before the impenitent and unpardoned sinner there was the destruction of the soul and body in hell, consignment to a state of darkness where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, cursed and banished from God into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, agonizing in flame, and refused a drop of water to mitigate the agony. Now these figures, to the minds both of Jews and Gentiles, must have conveyed a most appalling impression of the misery that was impending over the soul, unless it was relieved from sin and the consequent curse of the law. Jesus knew that the Jews especially would understand these figures as implying fearful future punishment. He therefore designed to do what was undoubtedly accomplished in the mind of every one that believed his instruction, which was to produce a conviction of sin in the soul by applying to it the requirements of the spiritual law of God, and by showing that the penalty consequent upon sin was fearful and everlasting destruction. We say, then, that every one who has followed these thoughts must perceive to be true that the instruction of Jesus would, necessarily, produce in the mind of every one that believed a conviction that he was a guilty and condemned creature, and that an awful doom awaited his soul, unless he received pardon and spiritual deliverance. Thus, then, by the instruction of Jesus Christ, showing the spirituality and holiness of the divine law, and applying it, with its infinite sanctions, to the exercises of the soul, that condition of mind was produced which alone could prepare man to love a spiritual deliverer, and there is no other way in which the soul could have been prepared in accordance with truth and the constitution of its own nature, to appreciate the spiritual mercies of God and love him as a spiritual saviour. The law and the truth being exhibited by Christ in the manner adapted to produce the condition of soul prerequisite to the exercise of affection for spiritual deliverance, now, as God was the author of the law, and he is the only proper object both of supreme love and obedience, and as man could not be happy in obeying the law without loving its author, it follows that the thing now necessary in order that man's affections might be fixed upon the proper object of love and obedience was that the supreme God should, by self-denying kindness, manifest spiritual mercy to those who felt their spiritual wants, and thus draw to himself the love and worship of mankind. If any other being should supply the need, that being would receive the love, it was therefore necessary that God himself should do it, in order that the affection of believers might centre upon the proper object. But notice that in order to the accomplishment of this end, without violating the moral constitution of the universe, 
it would be essentially necessary that the holiness of God's law should be maintained. This would be necessary, because the law is, in itself, the will of the Godhead, and God himself must be unholy before his will can be. And whatever God may overlook in those who know not their duty, yet, when he reveals his perfect law, that law cannot, from the nature of its author, allow the commission of a single sin. But besides, if its holiness were not maintained, man is so constituted that he could never become holy. Every change to a better course in man's life must be preceded by the conviction of error. Man cannot repent and turn from sin until he is convicted of sin in himself. Now if the holiness of the law, as a standard of duty, was maintained, man might thus be enlightened and convicted of sin, until he has seen and felt the last sin in his soul. And if the law allowed one sin, there would be no way of convicting man of that sin, or of converting him from it. He would therefore remain in some degree a sinner for ever. But, finally and conclusively, if the holiness of the law was not maintained, that sense of guilt and danger could not be produced which is necessary in order that man may love a spiritual saviour. Jesus produced that condition by applying to the soul the authority, the claims, and the sanctions of the holy law. It is impossible, therefore, in the nature of things, for a sinful being to appreciate God's mercy, unless he first feel his justice as manifested in the holy law. Love in the soul is produced by the joint influence of the justice and mercy of God. The integrity of the eternal law, therefore, must be forever maintained. Footnote. The preceding views are confirmed, both by the character of the moral law, and by its design and exposition, as given by the apostles of Christ. The moral law, or the rule and obligation of moral rectitude in the sight of God, which is revealed in the scriptures and interpreted by Christ, as obligatory upon the thoughts and feelings of the soul, is not only in its nature of perpetual and universal obligation, and adapted to produce conviction of sin in every soul that is sensible of transgressing its requirements, but the scriptures expressly declare that it was designed to produce conviction of sin in the soul, in order to prepare it to receive the gospel. The moral law is set forth in the scriptures as holy, just, and good in its character, and whatever may be its effects upon the soul itself, that its character is such no intelligent being in the universe can doubt, because it requires of every one perfect holiness, justice, and goodness. It requires that the soul should be perfectly free from sin in the sight of God, and, as we have seen, God ought not to allow one sin. If he did, the law would not be holy, nor adapted to make men holy. But the more holy the law, the more conviction it would produce in the mind of sinners. If the law extended only to external conduct, men would not feel guilty for their wrong thoughts, desires, or designs. And if it extended only to certain classes of spiritual exercises, men would not feel guilty for those which it did not condemn. But if it required that the soul itself, the spiritual agent, the eye of the mind, should be holy, and all its thoughts and feelings in accordance with the law of love and righteousness, then the soul would be convicted of guilt for a single wrong exercise, because while it felt that the law was holy, just, and good, 
it could not but feel condemned in breaking it. When Christ came, therefore, every soul that was taught its spirituality would be convicted of sin. One of two things men had to do, either shut out its light from their soul, and refuse to believe its spiritual and perfect requirements, or judge and condemn themselves by those requirements. And while the law thus showed sin to exist in the soul, and condemned the soul as guilty and liable to its penalty, it imparted no strength to the sinner to enable him to fulfil its requirements. It merely sets forth the true standard, which is holy in itself, and which God must maintain. And, by its light, it shows sinners their guilt, condemns them, and leaves them under its curse. Now the scriptures declare that this is the end which, by its nature, it is adapted to accomplish, and that it was revealed to men with the design to accomplish this end, and thus lead men to see and feel the necessity of justification and pardon by Jesus Christ. The scripture saith, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. The law worketh wrath, where there is no law there is no transgression. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, for where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin had reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness, unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Mark the following. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The argument of the apostle in vindicating the holiness of the law, while it at the same time produced conviction and condemnation, is conclusive. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet, i.e., I would not have felt covetousness to be sin, except the law had condemned it as such. For I was alive, i.e., not consciously condemned, without the law once, but when the law came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, i.e., which required the soul to be holy, and therefore alive to God, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, or acts shown to be sin by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, i.e. sin which did exist in the soul, was made to appear in its true evil character, working death in me by that which is good, i.e. the holiness of the law showed the evil of sin, that sin by the commandment which might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And then, for deliverance from this bondage, he looks to Christ. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death, etc. And mark again, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given that could have given life, verily righteousness would have been of the law, 
i.e., while the law showed the soul to be unholy and condemned to spiritual death, it provided no means for the relief of the sinner, no influence by which love and holiness could be produced in the heart. But the scriptures, that is, the revelation of law in the scriptures, hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now from the above scriptures it is evident that the apostle understood the law not only to be adapted, but designed by its author, to show the soul its guilty and lost condition, its inability to free itself from the condemnation to which it was liable, and to prepare it at the proper time, to trust in and love Christ for salvation from sin, and spiritual death, the consequence of sin. End footnote. How, then, could God manifest that mercy to sinners, by which love to himself and to his law would be produced, while his infinite holiness and justice would be obtained? We answer, in no way possible but by some expedient, by which his justice and mercy would both be exalted. If, in the wisdom of the Godhead, such a way could be devised, by which God himself could save the soul from the consequences of its guilt, by which he himself could in some way suffer and make self-denials for its good, and, by his own interposition, open a way for the soul to recover from its lost and condemned condition, then the result would follow inevitably that every one of the human family who had been led to see and feel his guilty condition before God, and who believed in God thus manifesting himself to rescue his soul from spiritual death, every one thus believing would, from the necessities of his nature, be led to love God his Saviour, and, mark, the greater the self-denial and the suffering on the part of the Saviour, in ransoming the soul, the stronger would be the affection felt for him. This is the central and vital doctrine of the plan of salvation. We will now, by throwing light and accumulating strength upon this doctrine from different points, illustrate and establish it beyond the possibility of rational doubt. End of section 13